Hello, welcome to Control Alt Delete, a new podcast from The Verge. I'm Neil Patel, I'm the editor in chief of The Verge, and I'm joined as always by my friend, legendary tech reviewer Walter Mossberg, our executive editor. Hey, Walt, how's it going? Uh, it, you know, I'm feeling legendary. That's how it's going. <laughs> it's a great way to feel. Uh, it's the legendary Verge. I think that could be the next name. You know, I don't know. I think we we have a ways to go to get to to mythic status, but uh, you know, we work on it every day. So we actually had a, like a crazy day today. We reviewed the Surface Book. We reviewed the Surface Pro Four. But I think most importantly, uh, while you published, I think what is a first for you? It's it's a movie review. It's not quite a review, but you went and saw the Steve Jobs movie. That's correct. Uh, and you wrote a reaction to it based on the fact that. You actually knew Steve Jobs for quite a long time. Right. That's what I did. It, it wasn't a classic movie review. Uh, I, I said the movie was entertaining. I think it was definitely entertaining, and it, it might even win an Oscar. But I was looking at it from the point of view of was it fair to Steve Jobs? Did it really represent uh, Steve Jobs as I knew him? And the answer was absolutely not. And... Um, and I think the irony uh, was – I made a comparison in the review to uh, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane was written in 1941 by a brilliant writer, Orson Welles, about a very uh, powerful contemporary business figure, William Randolph Hearst. It was fictionalized. It took artistic liberties with events and people and that kind of stuff, which is fine, which is what artists can do. But Hearst didn't call it. Uh, I mean, uh, Wells didn't call it Citizen Hearst. He called it Citizen Kane. It was a fictional movie. Uh, this one it was widely publicized to be the movie version. It was based on the rights they they bought for the only authorized biography of a man who um, is is uh, very fresh in our minds and has only been dead uh, four years and was only dead, I think, a year or. or or a matter of weeks when the when the rights were sold, so um, uh, they took liberties, just like Orson Welles did. They they uh, you know there's even a, a disclaimer at the very end of the film in teeny tiny type that that some events may have been made up and so forth, uh, but they didn't make up a fake name for it. They they said this is Steve Jobs and it's based on the biography of Steve Jobs. And I think it gives a, a false impression and an unfair one. You know, what's interesting to me, though, it, it's based on the Isaacson book. And the Isaacson book was widely criticized for, you know, kind of being deep in the part of the Steve Jobs story that is ascertainable that we already know. You know, the early Mac years, the, the Apple years, Pixar, you can go and do, I don't know, like a lot of primary source research in an interesting way about that stuff. It, but then there's what I think of as is the wall, right? Like Steve Jobs comes back to Apple. He does the iMac. He does the iPod. And this, this wall goes up. And I don't think Isaacson managed to get past the wall. I don't think anybody managed to get past the wall. Well, Isaacson I, got the version that Jobs wanted to tell. He, and he got a lot of stuff wrong. I disagree with you a, a little bit. I, I think there is a lot known about the later period. Yes, they put up a PR wall. And I didn't cover it in the early days, so I don't know. I don't think it, ha- it was anything like that. But um, but Isaacson's a good reporter. Um, my sense is the reaction you saw from Apple disliking that book was primarily that they felt that he uh, didn't he didn't give enough due to the maturing of Steve 
jobs as a person and as a manager um, after his exile years, which are the years he was running uh, Next uh, Computer. And, um, you know, I disagree somewhat with that. I think people who are very close to him, closer than me, um, were proportionately more sensitive and and I didn't think the Isaacs book was was a bad book at all. In fact, I think he you know he came pretty close uh, to capturing a, a very complex person. There was another book written by uh, uh, Brent Schlender, a journalist who was truly a personal friend of Jobs's, which gave much more emphasis to this change, which is a real change a- after next. So I, I would separate the kind of criticism that people at Apple had about that with my own criticism of the movie. I'm not representing people at Apple here. As you, as you know for a fact, nobody at Apple put me up to writing this thing. Uh, you did, actually. <laughs> and it was a late night. Uh, no, I, I saw the movie and I texted Walt that he should review it. It was kind of like a late night text. Like I saw it and I immediately said, well, you've got to go see this. It's, it's like obvious that nobody working on this movie actually knew Steve Jobs. But, you know... Look, when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak essentially – they didn't uh, – invent is the wrong word. But when they kind of got the personal computer right, which is really the, what Apple does and has done constantly, they don't necessarily invent something. But they kind of get it to a point where it's usable by regular people or or by what passes what passed in 1977 for regular computer users – when they did that, Steve Jobs was in his 20s. He was on the cover of Time in his 20s. So was Bill Gates, by the way. He became rich in his 20s. Um, and I don't think he was, uh, you know, emotionally prepared or prepared as a person to handle that kind of responsibility. He brought in adult supervision at Apple, John Scully. John Scully was, a, and eventually John Scully and the board um, there was a showdown, and Jobs was ousted from the company, or he, he was forced out of the company that he um, had co-founded. And then he went off in the wilderness. He tried to do a company that was going to be even better than Apple. It did not succeed as a business. Of course, Apple hadn't succeeded as well as a business as they had hoped. Uh, but uh, as you, I think, would agree, uh, the the technology they developed – particularly the software, turned out to be technologically quite important. And then he came back to Apple, and then he had probably the most amazing 14-year career, not only in tech but in American business in terms of turning out products that profoundly changed not only the tech industry but other industries, at least half a dozen other industries, and the lives of average consumers. It's it's like astonishing. And by the way, at the same time, ran a the most successful studio in Hollywood, Pixar, with like his left not in the movie at all, with his left hand, and by the way, started the most profitable, still the most profitable chain of retail stores in the world at the same time in these fourteen years. He did that. He invented the smart or he didn't invent, but he perfected and and created the modern smartphone. He created the modern music player. He created the modern tablet. He took the Mac computer and moved it from essentially 
something that had that had dwindled into failure to something that had that has become the thing that everyone is copying is trying to copy. He that that's all that's all he did. Change the mu- music industry, change the tech industry, change the movie industry, change the retail industry. He did all that in fourteen years. None of that is in this movie, and the movie is called Steve Jobs. It's, it's almost like they were afraid. I don't think of Aaron Sorkin as like a fearful person or somebody lacks in confidence. But, you know, you look at it and it's just too much to contend with over the course of the movie, right? And the supporting characters, like there's not enough conflict. It's a series no. of jobs winning over and over and over again. And the other characters who might have disagreed with him, it's almost hard to identify with them because they've just been crushed. Like, are you going to cast somebody as Michael Dell and say the iPod is a failure? Are you going to cast somebody to play Steve Ballmer and laugh at the iPhone? Well, I think you could. I mean, I was just about to say that. Uh, I mean, look, let's get a couple of things straight that I think we both would agree on. Because we both actually uh, we uh, interviewed Aaron Sorkin. I interviewed him at the very beginning of the process at, at my uh, D conference, uh, now the Code conference. Um, run by our sister site, Recode, where I'm still involved in the conference piece. And uh, I, it was in 2012, and he had just taken on the role, and he looked out over the room full of tech luminaries, and he said, everybody in this room knows more about Steve Jobs than I do. And I'm a little intimidated, and I'm going to have to learn a lot. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I think he said something to you about how, or to Charlie Rose, I watched both of those interviews, and he said something like, well, I felt I, I was like a, he didn't use this term, but it was like, I was sort of asleep during all the stuff Steve Jobs did, even though I used the products. So I'm kind of catching up. But I think think that um, you make artistic choices. He had a right to do that. He decided he wanted to focus on friction, as he called it. And that's fine, too, because there was plenty of friction in Steve Jobs' career. But to just talk about the early – he cherry-picked. He picked the early part of the career. He ends the movie, as I say in my piece, the movie Steve, Job, Steve Jobs ends just when the real Steve Jobs is about to begin his greatest run as a person and as an executive. But that's, that's what I mean by the wall, and I don't mean that it's Apple's PR wall. I mean the, the story of Next is sort of known, right? Like that, you know, this stuff is out there. Like this information is out there to be mined and like tell a story out of. But what's not out there is like the – the real story of like the iPod, like it's it's in the Eisenstein book, but the moment when Steve had to decide, like, how am I going to really make this thing? Like, how am I going to how how did he manage the conflict between John Rubenstein and Tony Fidel, who both thought they invented the iPod? Like, we don't know. Yeah, but it is a, it is out there. I mean, he gave forty interviews to Walter. Uh, you and I both know as journalists, if you get forty interviews on tape, each one lasts. An hour or two hours or three hours, and it was. And by the way, even when he was sick, Steve could talk. At least he did with me for two and a half, three hours at a time. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. He, he seemed to gain energy, even though, even though, honest to God, Neela, he looked like he was going to die any second. He was like a bag of bones at at, at 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 several points, and I, I just couldn't believe the energy. I mean, he just loved to talk about why he did things and how he did things and what was going on in the rest of the industry and that kind of thing. But that, but that's what so I mean. Walter, that's what's not Walter in the a- that's what's not in the movie and I don't think it's the idea that here I'll put it this way. This is what I mean by the wall. The idea that Steve ever considered something else 
before settling on the project or settling on the product. Right. Apple always just describes its products as inevitable, right? And like his masterstroke is products that, that actually do feel inevitable. Like you said, he invented the smartphone. He didn't, but the modern form of the smartphone, as Apple produced the iPhone, is now the inevitable form of the smartphone, right? And like that took a force of will. It took a commitment to this being the product. It took insight into what people actually wanted out of the thing, all these things. But at each one of those points, presumably he considered another option, right? And that's the stuff that we don't He did. See. He considered – he did the iPod. Let, let me tell you a story, Yeah. okay? Let me tell you a story. And he's told part of this story publicly, and I know a little more of it privately, and I'm trying to decide right now in my head how much of this – this, uh, this is a safe space. No one's listening. It's just it's, me. Yeah, it's a safe space, yeah. He actually decided to do the iPad first. The, the idea of a multi-touch, 10-finger, all-new UI – was done for a tablet, and it was done partly because he was annoyed at the Microsoft tablet uh, that for about 10 years Bill Gates unsuccessfully tried to push because and, – and, and by the way, the reason I, I, Walt Mossberg, think it was unsuccessful was that they didn't rewrite Windows. Right. In other words, they wanted it done, but they only added some patches here and there to Windows to accommodate – touch with a stylus. It was a stylus-driven thing. So Jobs ordered or asked a few of his engineers who he could pull away from other things to see if they could do sort of a tablet screen that you didn't need a stylus for and that would work well. And they did. And, he, and you know, he has said, he said publicly in interviews with me and in other places that he um, he saw a couple of different aspects of it. He saw the way the the scrolling work with that rubber band effect that we take for granted today, but where you know where it kind of goes back to the top and bounces a little bit, so yeah. it looks like it's a live thing. He saw a couple of other things like that, and he decided we're going to go do this, but we're not going to we're not going to do it on a tablet. The real big opportunity first is a phone, so we're going to do it in a phone. And he had been under pressure at the time to do a, a full screen, a big screen iPod. Uh, he had been under pressure to do an iPod phone. People, there were even mock-ups of uh, the idea of an iPod phone. So there's a whole story that Aaron Sorkin could have told there. There's negotiations with Singular, with AT&T at the time. Those people are around. I mean, Glenn Lurie, who is now the CEO of AT&T Mobility, was appointed just to deal with Steve right, in really? this whole thing. So Wait, I, tell I me mean, that story. Well, he he I forgot what his title was, some kind of probably vice president. And he and you know, they look, he, he the the story is that Steve uh needed a carrier. He hated working through intermediaries. One of the best things about Steve and about Apple and about its products was that he they made the products for the people that used them. They didn't make the products for the IT department to then pass out, and they didn't make the products for the phone carriers to then pass out. I personally think that's one reason the products were often better. So – but in this case, you can't do a phone without carriers. So he needed a carrier and he needed to say to the carrier, you will have no control over the phone. But you will get to carry a phone with my brand on it and I promise you I will make a great phone that you will love carrying and that you will make money off of and all that. It turned out that Singular was – a company that was uh, willing to do it and that was um, 
in the middle of a rebranding, rebranding themselves as at t through a bunch of corporate acquisitions <laughs> that are too boring to discuss here. That's a whole here. movie into itself. at t breaking up and then reforming itself. Yeah, yeah but, the, but the point is they went for this deal, which was highly unusual and broke a lot of their rules. And he talked about this, by the way, at our conference um, on stage. They went for this deal um, without ever seeing the phone. Unheard of. Right. Unheard of. Well, I had always heard and, that he went to Verizon first, and they said no. Well, yeah, he did go to Verizon, and and they couldn't come to terms. Um, some people dispute that, but I believe that to be true. And so he so he he made a deal with the devil, which also would have made good movie material, <laughs> of of a single carrier that could not screw around and have control over the phone. And in those days, even more than today, carriers had. Tremendous control over the phone, but not this phone. Right. And so, um, uh, you know, I think that is dramatic, and I think there was friction there, and I think that you could have portrayed Steve Ballmer laughing at it. You could have portrayed what was going on in, at BlackBerry around it. You could have done a, a movie in which the iPhone thing was the central thing, and the iPhone, iPad, you know, and the decision to shelve the iPad and then pull it out later and do it. Um, all of that was rich the decision to take the mac which was which had <laughs> which had oddly won the war for how computers worked because windows did the same thing uh even though it all started at xerox mm-hmm. and 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 then had you know basically dropped into i don't know it was 2% or something and steve built it back up to the point where people were copying the macbook air that's a story. And there's a Bill Gates character you can cast. There's a Steve Ballmer character. There is a Michael Dell character you can cast. Um, I'm not saying he shouldn't have done anything from Steve's early life. I just think a movie that's entirely about when Steve was uh, at his worst and taking his worst characteristics and, 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 and fictionalizing them and exaggerating them is just not the Steve – that was the historically most important Steve and the Steve that I knew. And what's actually the Steve that would the Steve that would brag about his children. You 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 could watch this whole movie and never know that he was married. Right. And happily married. Never know that he had other children. So what never was he know like that, when, you, when when he came, you know, I, I don't know how much our listeners know about the the weeds of sort of what we do, but when Walt reviews a product or I review a product, we often take product briefings or meet people at the companies. They, they walk us through what they think is important, and then we go off and do our review. Um, but Walt is in the unique position of having received many of these briefings and had many of these conversations with Steve Jobs in person directly, which is kind of kind of rare. It's, it's, it's almost wholly unique, I think. So when he was showing you the products, what was he like? He <laughs> Well, he loved his products, and he also was a showman, which is why it's such a shame. Look, I'm not saying his whole thing or or the whole of Steve Jobs or of anybody is how they present their products, but I can tell you this. Before Steve Jobs, I'm reasonably confident it was not considered part of the job of a CEO to unveil the new products. I mean some must have done it, but it was not considered crucial. I don't think any board hires a CEO now in almost any industry that makes products – particularly consumer products, without trying to make sure the CEO can pull off what some version of what Steve Jobs pulled off. So For with better that or in mind, worse. <laughs> yeah, well, with, with, that, worse, with that in mind, here's what would happen. I would go to Apple. 
I would uh, sometimes I would go because I asked, and sometimes I would go because he would call me and say, "When are you coming out here next?" As for I don't know if the listeners know, but I'm based on the East Coast, and he would say, "Would you come by? I have something I want to show you." And it was great for me because I often got to see things a little bit in advance. And look, I knew he was trying to court me. I get it. I'm not a dope, but um, but it was still good to see things in advance. So I would go into a – usually it was in the boardroom, a giant room, much too big for the two of us and maybe one technical person and one PR person or sometimes just the two of us, depended. So I'd, what, we'd walk into this big boardroom. And the funny thing was, even though it was only the two of us or a few people, he still had the new products covered with black cloth. He didn't have to do that. He he just wanted to be able to pull the cloth off and and, and show it to me, mm-hmm. and he would watch my face. Yeah. And if I seemed to be saying, I don't get what the difference is here, <laughs> his face would fall, and we would have a discussion. And sometimes... In, and and then you know so we talk about the products and that kind of stuff, and he'd have somebody demo it or he demo it. often he would demo it and um, could be a new iPod it could be uh, uh, you know a new iPhone it could be a new iMac whatever it was uh, Apple TV whatever mm-hmm. um, and then then we would spend two hours he would just put up his feet on the table the big board table which was. Not a big, expensive mahogany table, as I recall, more of a work kind of table. And we would talk. We would talk about the industry. One of one of the things he would say to me, I don't think I've ever said this in public. I'd walk in to see him, and he would say, um, uh, "So have you been to Redmond lately?" <laughs> Meaning Microsoft. And I would say, "Well, I was there, you know, a few months ago or whatever." And of course, things I heard. Off the record, in Microsoft, I didn't tell Steve Jobs, uh, but he would just say, have you been there? And I would say yes, and he would say, is Steve Ballmer still firmly in control? (laughs) And I would say yes, and he would pause for a second, pump his arm and say yes, (laughs) because he thought Steve Ballmer – he had a a huge rivalry but a lot of respect for Bill Gates – and I don't think he felt that way towards Steve Ballmer. <laughs> that is incredible. And, 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 and that was a little act he would do. And, um, and it, I'm just trying to say – I'm not saying that that's heartwarming. It, some people would say, well, that's awful. But it doesn't matter. He was human. Yeah. And in the movie, he's an arrogant robot who has no compassion, who has no humor. I mean that was humor. It was may have been mean humor, but it was humor. Um. He would say to me in conversations, he would talk about how proud he was about his, his kids and where they were in school. I mean just the way you and I might talk or you might talk with your your your, your colleague at work or your, your friend. He was human and he did that stuff. Yeah. In the movie, he doesn't do any – you can't imagine that person doing any of that stuff. And by the way, the last time I saw him, which was – when he was very sick, and I wrote about this after his death, we took a walk. I was very afraid he was going to collapse, and I didn't know CPR, but he insisted on walking. We got to this neighborhood park, and we sat on a bench, and he started lecturing me about my health. I mean, this guy was – he was recovering from a liver transplant, and you know he was, di- he was dying for eight years there, and he kept 
coming back and then he kept slipping down and you know whatever but he was he was gradually in the process of dying and he and I don't know how it came up but he came up that I smoke cigars and he gave me a big lecture about it people yeah. people who are uh, robots who, who who disdain everyone else like you saw in that movie don't do that they don't do that and I think what's you know it's it's just I I I've I saw the movie twice, and I interviewed Sorkin and Boyle um, after the second time I saw it. And you know, the first question I asked was, they're, they're, "The words cancer and Pixar and iPhone aren't in this movie," um, because that's that to me is it it invalidates so much about the arc of his life, right? If the arc of the movie is about his daughter Lisa, right? And in the first right. scene of the movie. I don't want to spoil the movie for people. It should not be a surprise. But in the first scene of the movie, he denies that he's her father. In the last scene of the movie, he like basically says, I'm going to invent the iPod for you, which is also a lie. Completely fabricated. Also a lie. But also a lie. But that's how he says it. As far as we know. I mean, I've never talked to Lisa. Maybe that conversation happened. I strongly No, doubt. Sorkin told me that it didn't. Okay. Right. It's, that's, that's his – he's like, I invented that because that's how I wanted that character to say to his daughter, I love you. Um, I don't – I – I think one thing that we all know just instinctively is that before a product launch, Steve Jobs did not confront a rogues gallery of people from his past with an axe to grind. Um, that's no, just not how these didn't. things work. Of course he didn't. John Sc- I mean, Jeff Daniels plays John Scully, who, for the two listeners who don't know, was brought in to be CEO of Apple when Jobs was young and headstrong and the board encouraged him and he agreed to get adult supervision. And they were actually close for a while, and then they fell out. And I don't want to go into all the details. They're all in the, in the Isaacson book and in other books. But um, um, Jeff Daniels, who's a great actor and particularly good at, at, at the kind of dialogue that Aaron Sorkin yeah. brilliantly writes, um, is pictured in this movie as John Scully as a kind of kind father figure, which he was for a little while, but not by the time of this movie, who who um, is actually allowed in backstage at the IMAC launch at the very end. And I talked to somebody who was extremely close to Steve just because I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to really hear all the Apple reactions to it, but I did want to check certain facts. And so I checked about what happened backstage. And this person said to me, he hated John Scully. <laughs> not not only would he not have seen a, even a friend when he was intensely preparing for one of these presentations, but he would never have seen John Scully. And and John Scully is treated also as sage. You just you just have the sense. It's just like Jeff Daniels' anchor man in in the newsroom, which was a pretty weak effort by Aaron Sorkin, but I watched every episode. He's wise. He's grown up, you know, all that kind of stuff. John Scully was not sage. John Scully was a marketing guy at Pepsi who was brought into Apple, and when Steve Jobs left, he named himself the head of, I'm probably going to get the exact title wrong, but essentially the head of R&D at Apple, which was ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, he had. T- I'm not saying he had no talents in other things, but that was not one of them. I mean, it- and then and then they did the Newton, and he personally promised that the handwriting would be fantastic and that it would sell a certain number. 
he way overpromised and underdelivered. Kind you, of the opposite of what Steve did. Were you in the review game when the Newton came out, or is that even before you? I reviewed the Newton. Yeah. What did you think of the Newton? I gave it a bad review. <laughs> I should have put uh, that review. But but I'll but I'll tell you, Neilai, that that some of the underlying technology in the Newton was brilliant. Of course. Because it was the first device, at least that I had ever seen, which which we now see elements. We now see elements of what was in the Newton in, in Siri and Google Now and Cortana. Because you could say to the Newton, uh, fax this to Neelai Patel right. if you had written a memo. And I say fax because it, it didn't – there wasn't an email. Yeah. And it knew that the word fax was, a, was an active verb so that it, it meant I wanted it to do something with what I had just written. And it knew that Neelai Patel was a name so it would go look in the in the – address book in there pretty amazing but but scully emphasized the handwriting gigantic failure yeah and but the movie makes scully out to be a hero who's just who who, who loves jobs and is sad for jobs because he's such a jerk yeah and um I, all i'm saying was saying my critique i was not saying that aaron sorkin was a bad writer just the opposite I was not saying that he didn't have the right to make artistic choices. Just the opposite. I said he did. I just think he made the wrong artistic choices, and the ones he made did not represent the Steve Jobs that really matters to history and that and the Steve Jobs that I knew. You know, the most popular Scully theory in this movie, well, the most popular th- movie about the theory among the Verge staff here in New York is about Scully, and it's that Scully is actually dead the whole time, that only Steve Jobs can see him, and he's the ghost of Christmas past. Which, because in the second act of the movie, like, Jobs literally opens a door to an empty room with chairs stacked up, and John Scully is sitting there like an evil dictator or something. And it's like... Well, that would be cool. I mean, that didn't occur to me, but sure, I could see that. He has all these arguments with the ghost. Like, no one else interacts. In the first act, Scully is, like, backstage with, like, a beautiful bottle of wine and a tablecloth. Like, everything, every staging of Scully is actually fantastic in its way it, it doesn't it 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 even within the absurd reality of the movie it's like one step beyond yeah and and i think he said to you uh or again i'm it may have been the charlie rose one i tried to i tried to not read everything Look, well if you're no, going to confuse me for charlie rose i'm just going to take that as a compliment i think okay, that's fair good. completely uh I, I i know both of you actually <laughs> um i uh in one of them, he says, "He says I was I did become fascinated with John Scully. I mean, he went to Florida, met with John Scully, and I think he even used the word I wanted to set the record straight.' But Steve Jobs is dead, so he couldn't have told Aaron Sorkin what actually happened between him and and John Scully. The only source, the only direct source alive to tell him about that." Is John but Scully? It's, sorry. If, so if when he says set the record that, straight, he, me, he means basically tell the tell it the John Scully way. There's one thing that, like, actually, as as a journalist, makes me mad. It's Aaron Sorkin spewing this nonsense about how he's setting the record straight about John Scully with one hand, and with the other hand, he's saying, "Well, it's it's not a biopic. It's not reality. It's an abstract painting." And it's like you got to pick one, dude. Right. Like. It's either you're setting the record straight and you are correcting uh, a misinterpreted historical record with your movie, or you're, you know, 
you're doing this abstract impressionism thing about characters. Like you don't get both. And that is why and that is why if he had written a movie and by the way, I think listeners also ought to understand that he he wrote a very particular kind of movie. He he has said in some of these interviews, and I understand this, that he's much more comfortable as a play playwright. And he had, a lot of people know this, but he's written several plays that have been well regarded. He's much more known for The West Wing and for TV and movies. He says he kind of fakes his. I mean, he's being. I don't think you should take him literally, but he says it kind of fakes his way through TV and movies, but he loves plays. This movie is written as a three-act play. Yeah. And he felt that these artistic choices that you just described are, were the ones that work best in that format. My point, or one of my points in this critique, I wouldn't call it exactly a review, but this commentary I wrote, is just that if you're going to fictionalize to this extent, if you're going to cherry pick to this extent, if you're going to exaggerate to this extent so that it fits your writing format, the friction, the three acts, the everything taking place in the back room, including things that would never have taken place in the back room before a presentation, <laughs> then you have, two, you, you have two honest choices, neither of which he took. One is to do what Wells did. Maybe Wells did it for, I don't know, so he wouldn't get sued. I don't know why Wells did it, but... Don't call it Steve Jobs. Yeah. Call it something else. And then, you know, you can let it be known in interviews. The studio can let it be known that it's, you know, based loosely on this book. But don't call it Steve Jobs. Or call Steve Jobs and put a big friggin' thing up at the beginning that says this is – that says what the movie actually does say in tiny type at the end about yeah. fictionalized and made-up events. And this is not meant to represent the whole career of Steve Jobs. Or another way to do it would be to at the end to say, you know how, and, and there are other movies that have done this. Steve Jobs went on to, you know, mature and grow and be the, in some ways, yeah, the you most couldn't have done that with this business movie, figure. I mean, there, there's just there's a, he, he he he. This is not a movie that helps you understand what Steve Jobs was by the time he died. It may, in an exaggerated way help you understand a little bit what he was like in the 80s or something but it doesn't it doesn't help and one thing that you pointed out that i i think we we need to stress to people because it's a kind of obscure thing is if you, anybody that doesn't know the history who watches this will walk out of this movie thinking that next computer which was the company he founded after he was thrown out of apple and actually sold all but one apple share um he – you would walk out thinking, oh, this was like a short-term project that was really just a secret plan to get him back to Apple. Yeah. I mean it's explicitly He did get him back to such. Apple, but he couldn't possibly have known or figured that out 12 years in advance before they had even written the operating system. It, the movie makes it sound like – on the one hand, it says there's no operating system when he introduces the next computer. In fact, there was a preview – operating system, I wouldn't say it was – and they wouldn't say it was, was ready for prime time. But there was the, a bare bones thing. The movie says that. And then it says this was just a, a kind of – this entire company was sort of a Potemkin village, a, <laughs> a fraud, a, a scam, all designed to get him back into Apple. And when you pointed that out to him in the interview you did, he got really – I mean that's the – actually, I was taking notes – 
In some ways, that's the, I'm pretty sure that's the longest answer he had to give. Yep. He was really flustered and angry about that question. Yeah, he, I remember he um, he put his hand on my sh- Sorkin put his hand on my shoulder and said, "I don't want to argue with you," and then proceeded to argue with me. Uh, and I was like, "Well, I did." Like, you know, that's the moment in the Sorkin interview where the interviewer has like done his job. He's gotten Sorkin to respond because these guys go on these press tours and they give the same answer over and over again. And I I watched a bunch of the interviews. I read a bunch of the interviews, and no one really challenged them. On the facts, and it's actually really interesting. And you know, I think of *The Verge*. Right, we the Steve Jobs movie for us is a really interesting thing for a site like ours because it is about culture and it's about technology and it's about change and it's entertainment and t- literally an entertainment product about technology that we cover very deeply. Um, and I, I'm going to say this: I'm going I'm I'm to blow up in the the press cycle on this movie. They wanted the entertainment sites to cover the movie before the tech sites. So the embargo on reviews and other coverage was a he- for for magazines like New York Magazine or whatever, whatever, RogerEbert.com. Like it was a week before the tech reviews because they didn't want the tech sites to get into the factual – I suspect they didn't want the tech sites to get into the factual inaccuracy. So I, I had to argue with them and say like, hey, like – we're not actually just a tech site. We're a culture site too. So we, we want the early deadline. Um, and it was, that was an interesting conversation. But then as I was talking to Sorkin, I was like, this is why, because it's actually very natural for me to challenge him on the facts of the technology in a way that isn't me like pushing my glasses up my nose and being like, actually next, you know, it's more like, why did you choose to gloss over this in your storytelling? And you're right. He was very flustered. Yeah. I mean, Again, we can't stress enough. I don't think either of us, uh, you know, misunderstands or would deny him the right to make artistic choices. I think we're questioning the choices he made. This is a this guy had a long career. It was in three distinct phases. Um, he changes a person. He changes a business person. Um, if he hadn't, if he had been the person in this movie. Could he have possibly recruited and retained people like Tim Cook and Johnny Ive and Eddie Q? No, he could not. Right. He could not have done that. Would people have cried? I mean, I can tell you the day he died, and no one was surprised that he was going to die. Everybody had been preparing for it. But the day he died, which happened to be, I mean, it was like a launch day for them, um, people cried. Yeah. Grown people, rich, grown people cried because they felt such a bond toward him. Now, did he ever dress them down? Probably. Was he ever really nice and helpful to them? I've heard stories that even now I'm not going to tell you on this podcast about that. Um, And they cried. And so somehow the robot character in the movie, the hateful, arrogant, my way or the highway robot character, doesn't jibe with the character that I knew or that these people knew or that could attract the kind of talent and keep the kind of talent he attracted and he kept. I mean, he, he kept people all the way from Next well into his years at Apple. I mean, some of them eventually left, but he kept people, and he brought on new ones. I think it would have been... And, oh, go ahead. And, 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 and so it just doesn't add up. And, and so Aaron Sorkin can make whatever choices he wants, but, but calling this movie Steve Jobs, saying it's based on the book, and then doing what he did bothers me and that's why i wrote what i wrote yeah. you know what I, I think i really want 
and um, and I, I just want this as a as you know, partially because I'm a journalist, I'm interested, but also as a, someone who is deeply curious and interested in, in how big decisions get made. I'm dying for Walter Isaacson to release his interview tapes. Right, he's got forty. He's got forty interviews on tape of Jobs just talking. And well, he's he's under no obligation. To I know, that. and I, mean, I but I, be, you know, one someday he's got to give them to a museum or something, right? I mean, it, that that is a piece of the historical record that is, it's literally it's yeah. Well, you, but you don't you don't know what his deal was with Jobs. Well, well, sure, but and I don't know either. But I mean, he might have had a deal with Jobs that they never get released. That's fair. That but, wouldn't have been um, uncharacteristic. Yeah, I, I'll tell you one more story about yeah, him yeah. that I think. Belies, and I know we're over on time. I think if any episode of the show is going to go over, it should be this one. <laughs> he, and, and I'm not going to name names here because I don't want to embarrass anybody, or you know, I don't have I don't have permission really to do this, but to name names. But just to show you something, so later in his life, in the last few years of his life, on one of the occasions on which he spoke at uh, our conference, and by our I mean me and Kara Swisher. He was a speaker, and backstage he encountered uh, a couple, a lesbian couple that um, had a couple had a new baby, and uh, a relatively new baby. And um, they are they told him the story about how at the time under state law, even though each of them was the mother of one of their children, uh, they uh, had to cross adopt. Because under the law, they didn't have equal rights to heterosexual couples, and so the children couldn't be, you know, you had to actually go through an adoption. And he was, he sat, stood, he, he listened, he, he was sympathetic, he was, he gave them a little advice. I don't remember what it was, I don't know what it was. He interacted with the child. I mean, this was nothing he had to do. Uh, but he cared about it, and obviously he was an adopted person, and he had a, a, a child that I, I presume he had to adopt. It's another thing, by the way, in the movie. The movie is so much about this um, out of lock, wedlock birth he had that he did, in fact, deny, which is a shameful thing. But it doesn't tell you that eventually Lisa came to live with him, mm-hmm. and I mean that's just not there. Yeah, it's not in the movie. His wife's not in the movie. None of this is in the movie. But back to my anecdote. I mean. That's not to say that this guy was Mother Teresa. It's not to say that he, that he was the world's, you know, maybe best example of a humanitarian person. But he was a human being, and he grew, and he became a much, a much more mature person. And that is just missing. Not to mention his amazing magnetic passion that came out on stage. It's so it's so frustrating to those of us who've seen it, yeah. including both of us, that the, that the movie just stops every time, yeah. rather than trying to depict that. I mean, can you imagine though being an actor and like you know the iPhone is in this one, but having to do that iPhone introduction where he says it's three things and he's no, I mean, and that's probably why they didn't try. Yeah, and that's you what know, I mean. I it, it seems like they're just afraid, like the the person of Steve Jobs in, in the fourteen years that you're talking about, where he was so prolific and. You know, basically ruled the the, the tech world. It, it's it's almost like they looked at that and said, you know what, we don't we can't. It's just not we can't get it. I, just imagine this movie if if the three acts were instead 
I don't know the the first the first Mac, the iPod, and the iPhone, right? Like just imagine. Oh, that it would be it would have been spectacular. Um, and that's like it would have been. I think that's and it, and the backstory would have been kind of a jerk. Yeah. Um. And and then just showing. I mean, you know, I think Sorkin thinks he humanized him a little toward the end, as you mentioned before, with that thing about he's going to make the iPod for his daughter. But, uh, but it was it went much beyond that, and it, it's not in the movie. And he would have had a chance to do that. That would have been an amazing movie. And let me point out that on the West Wing, mm-hmm. which I I think is the property for which he is best known. I mean, yeah. he wrote he wrote a. a couple of great movies and 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 some other tv series but i i mean you know the west wing is but by the way steve jobs loved the west wing i, I didn't know this until i started talking yeah. to a couple of apple people and sorkin helped jobs one of them said they, there was speech. i'm sorry Sork, aaron sorkin helped you know that famous stanford commencement speech that jobs gave yeah I got a little edit from aaron sorkin this is like how oh i didn't sorkin know that said this so so steve steve jobs really respected sorkin yeah. um but Sorkin was not afraid in the West Wing to 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 show assassinations, uh, attempted assassinations, to show State of the Union speeches, show all kinds of tough things, and yet – and to show failure and to show deception and all of that on the part of a president, a fictional president with whom I presume he politically sympathized and who he gave a chance to be human. He gave him a chance to do bad stuff, and he gave him a chance to be do good stuff. He didn't give that chance yeah. to the to a real person, Steve Jobs, and that really bothered me. That really bothered. One me. day, someone's gonna someone's gonna get it right, I, I, and I think all the feedback that I've heard about this movie and the other books and the other movies that we've covered and feedback that you've heard that it just seems like everyone is like no one's getting this right yet, and I, I think someday there's gonna emerge a true portrait, and I. And it's just just I'll say one more thing, and then I think we should probably wrap yep. up. It's important that somebody get this right, and I don't know who will be, uh, but it's important that somebody get this right because you can make a case that for the fourteen or fifteen years uh, where which were his most productive part of his career, and even the first couple of years where he 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 made the most popular of the first personal computers and then he took what Xerox Parks had done and made it work in a in a computer those were huge achievements this man was the most influential figure in technology in business and that's no disrespect to Bill Gates who was probably a better businessman a better business executive but not as technologically and therefore socially influential as jobs and so it's important for somebody to get this right yeah well i think you're right that is an excellent place for us to wrap up so once again thank you to everybody for uh listening to our show um we have a lot of other shows we listen to if you're interested there's the vergecast which we record on thursdays and put out on fridays there's verge esp with emily and liz which is great and i encourage everybody to listen to it and there's what's tech with chris plant which is also wonderful um walt and i both love your feedback um i'm sure a lot of people are gonna have a lot of thoughts in this episode um you can tweet at walt he's at walt mossberg you can tweet at me we're at reckless we also i think will both admit to reading our itunes reviews um and we enjoy being at the top of those charts so if you want to jump on itunes and leave us some feedback 
give us the most amount of stars that your heart feels comfortable leaving. I think we'd appreciate that. Um, and you can also just send us notes and generally talk to us any way that you can find us. So that's it. Thank you so much, Walt. We'll talk and, and 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 one more thing. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, if those of you out there listening to this feel so inclined, you can remind Neli that he still owes me 100 bucks. You can. You can do such a thing. I'm going to, at this point, the hype level, I've got to really deliver. I've got to, like, I've got to get, like, a flock of, like, pigeons to deliver you $1 bills, like 100 pigeons I, or something. I, 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 uh, well, I, just, I just want my <laughs> I just want my <laughs> We'll figure it out. All right. That is the show. You'll notice that uh, I'm quickly transitioning away from the $100 to ending the show. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Walt, a pleasure as always. We'll talk next week. A pleasure. See you next week.